Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable materials, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash SMM. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS. Welcome to this peer voice activity on obesity in adolescents. This activity comprises a series of six streaming episodes with doctors Veronica Vasquez-Velasquez and Louise Bauer. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials. Hello, this is Veronica Vasquez-Velasquez. I am from National Institute of Medical Science and Nutrition, Salvador Subiran, in Mexico City, Mexico. Welcome to this activity titled Optimizing Obesity Care in Adolescent Patients, Practical Brooklyn's to overcome barriers. In this first episode, we will review the serious health and social consequences of obesity in adolescents, as well as identify key opportunities to influence weight loss outcomes in adolescents through better communication and the use of novel strategies. Obesity is a chronic, relapsing, multifactorial, neurobehavioral disease, wherein an increase in body fat promotes adipose tissue dysfunction and abnormal fat mass physical forces, resulting in adverse metabolic, biomechanical, and psychosocial health consequences. Over 340 million children and adolescents aged 5 to 19 years were classified as having overweight or obesity in 2016. The prevalence of overweight and obesity has risen dramatically from just 4% in 1975 to just over 18% in 2016. Of course, there are many contributing factors to obesity in adolescents. We can think about the genes, the environment, the style of parenting, some hormones, biological factors related also to food, mental health, the health behaviors and overeating behaviors. So we, need to understand the multifactorial of this disease and many factors can contribute to uh, an adolescence to develop obesity. And living with obesity can have consequences in the health. Psychosocial, like depression, eating disorders, neurological, cardiovascular, pulmonary, gastrointestinal, renal, musculoskeletal and endocrine uh, factors. Of course, living with obesity can lead to all of these uh, situations, but it's, it's not just as a, a risk. It can be diagnosed in early age. But also, living with stigma harms health and contributes to obesity. Imagine being teased or bullied because of your weight. So that can lead to psychosocial stress and problems like depression, low self-esteem, social isolation, and this can alter the eating behaviors of, per of the persons, of the adolescents, decrease physical activity, and this can contribute to the negative feedback loop. So collectively, these factors may adversely affect the quality of care, prevent patients with overweight and obesity from seeking medical care, and contribute to worst the morbidity and mor mortality independent of excess adiposity. So what can we conclude about obesity in adolescents? Well, obesity is a matter of health and it's a gateway to many conditions, many serious conditions and other chronic conditions too. Bullying has gotten worse. 
A main reason for teasing and bullying at school is because of the weight. Five to 10 have experienced weight stigma. And also a child with obesity has up to 10 times more likely to become an adult with overweight or obesity. So we have the opportunity to influence outcomes because obesity is a chronic disease with escalating effects over time, a life course approach to identification and treatment should begin as early as possible and continue longitudinally through adolescence and young adulthood with transition into adult care. Thank you very much. In this episode, we will focus on specific barriers to care in adolescents patients with obesity I want to talk about four roadblocks to appropriate obesity care in adolescents. The first, healthcare provider stigma and misconceptions. Second, weight stigma and internalization. Third, the family misconceptions and stigma. And fourth, the lack of healthcare providers' knowledge, I mean the training. How we can experience and how we can uh, analyze the weight stigma and misconceptions in the medical office? Well, we can see it in an office with inadequate furniture and not equipment for adolescents with obesity. A negative and insensitive comments about weight. Assuming that the adolescent does not care about his or her health or is not motivated or interested. Our non-verbal language of rejection, for example, no eye contact with the adolescents or his or her parents. You can see stigma if a doctor, a physician, a nutritionist give the patient to uh, uh, faster uh, consultations, believing that it is a waste of time. Also, underutilization of treatments or other services, assuming that everything will be solved by losing weight or with willpower. Labeling the adolescents and her or his parents as you are obese or this is your fault. And finally, the omission or error in diagnosis, including the diagnosis of obesity. So this is a very roadblock that we need to focus. Second, the way stigma internalization is in adolescence. This is the awareness of an agreement with negative stereotypes about weight, for example, what people say, fat people are lazy. Also, we can see it in applications of negative stereotypes to the self, like they think, so I am lazy. And finally, the mistreatment or devaluation of oneself because of perceived self-classification as overweight. For example, I am less attractive than most of other people because of my weight. It's important to, to look into this because the internalized weight stigma can mediate the weight stigma, the experience of weight stigma, and of course, the biopsychosocial outcomes. In a recent study, the Action Teens study, the uh, 65% said of, of adolescents said that they thought that the weight loss was completely their own responsibility. The third point is the family misconceptions and stigma. The more common reasons, because sometimes acknowledging the barriers is the first step to overcoming. So be, be prepared and know how to react if the parents of the adolescent says, my son or daughter should have a normal weight. Losing weight is a matter of willpower. It's not that bad. The BCT is not that bad. 
There are parents who say, if I talk to my son or daughter, she or he might develop an eating disorder. I've tried to help, but nothing works. Parents who, who think that it's their fault. And parents who says, I am tired of feeling like the food police. We need to focus on this because this can be barriers also to medical care. And finally, the lack of knowledge or training. In this study action teams, we also found that 43% of the healthcare providers said that they receive an advanced obesity training, but also 13% said that they receive an advanced obesity training with evaluation or certification and, and it would last, last more than one day. So we need to be prepared. And of course, we need to know that it's our responsibility to improve the clinical practice. How we can do this? With role modeling. We as a healthcare provider should demonstrate and model to other uh, colleagues, other professional colleagues, staff and trainees that is supportive and that we are non-biased toward children and families with obesity. Also the language and the word choice. It is important for pediatric healthcare professionals to use appropriate, sensitive and non-stigmatizing language in communication. The behavior change counseling need to be patient-centered, empathetic behavior change approach, such as motivational interviewing, because this is a good framework to support patients and families. And of course, our clinical environment. Pediatricians should create a safe, welcoming, and non-stigmatizing clinic space for youth with obesity and their families. Thank you very much. In this episode, we will focus on the identification of obesity in adolescent patients and how to start the conversation with patients and their families with topics which might include criteria for assessing weight and recognizing adolescent obesity, practical advice and engaging patients as well as parent caregivers about causes, consequences and current management options. Despite its limitations, the BMI, it's uh, a great tool, clinical tool, to diagnose obesity, and it's 95th percentile to any sex and age, the diagnosis. So we have the first step of the diagnosis. But then we need to think about how to communicate this. The first step is to ask permission with a question like, can we talk about your weight? Or asking, how do you feel about your weight? The second, avoid labeling using people's first language. Avoid saying obese. Instead, say you are an adolescent living with obesity. And the third, use neutral words. For example, unhealthy weight. You are gaining too much weight for your age. We are talking about your height. Of course, we need to avoid uh, words like big, fat, or chubby. This is how it looks, the conversation. For example, BMI is not just confusing for you. It might be pretty confusing for many people. What's most important to understand is that this is a way of measuring your health. It tells your teachers, your doctors, and your family how you are growing. Just like when we see the doctor for a checkup and they listen to your heart and measure your weight. Some kids have another health issues like asthma or trouble concentrating. Carrying around too much weight can hurt your health too. We can also say, what your report says 
is that you might be carrying more weight than is healthy for your uh, for being a girl or a boy of your age and size. And also we can say, losing extra weight is not easy for everyone, especially for someone your age. It is also very hard to do alone. There are a lot of things that can get in the way of healthy eating and getting enough physical activity every day. So this is how it looks, the conversation. And of course, we need to uh, create a space when we, when we can engage patients and the parents. Be aware on how you talk to the patients. Be positive and supportive. Be realistic. Keep the conversation open. And normalize the issue. This is a health concern, but everyone, everyone has a different uh, health concerns. We can use the motivational interviewing. This is a communication framework. So we can start engaging patients and their parents, establishing collaborative role, understanding the patient's issues, to focus on identifying appropriate and productive strategies to change uh, the weight status. Then we can evoke triggering internal motivation, empowering change to find a plan. We need to help our patients to plan, carrying out effective change plan, dealing with relapse, etc. This is a very interesting uh, study where adolescents recommend to their parents how to talk about weight. And listen to this. Parents should avoid when discussing weight include blaming, judging or shaming. Adolescents uh, want their parents to avoid yelling, being uh, mean, critical, or making fun, pressuring them or telling that uh, they need to do this or to do that. They recommend to uh, avoid hurtful language. And of course, they recommend to making a big deal about weight. A 17-year-old girl said, I wish you could encourage me to love myself more instead of telling me I'll get all this disease and die a painful death. So here is a summary. Measure height and weight routinely and plot on BMI for age charts is very necessary. But don't forget to evaluate mental, functional, and medical issues related to obesity. Use a developmentally appropriate approach for diagnosis and of, and of course, and starting the treatment. Support for sustainable behavior change is the key in the treatment of obesity. Current services are vastly under-resourced in most countries. And of course, please tackle weight stigma. Thank you very much. Hello, my name is Louise Bauer and I'm from the University of Sydney in Australia. Welcome to the fourth episode on the available clinical care guidelines for obesity for adolescent patients. We will discuss the roles of the recommended behavioural lifestyle modifications, available pharmacological options and bariatric surgery. Now, you ask, what about guidelines? Well, these do vary somewhat between countries according to health systems, insurance cover and universal health coverage. However, the 2023 American Academy of Pediatrics Clinical Practice Guideline is actually at the moment the most recently published one, published in January 2023, and it provides a very good overview, although there are parts of it that are very US-specific. 
but there are other guidelines as well, and please check for your local region or country. But what are the elements of paediatric obesity management? Well, clearly, there's management of obesity-associated complications. If your patient has type 2 diabetes or obstructive sleep apnea or, or orthopedic complications, they clearly must be treated. Of course, there's also long-term weight maintenance strategies and additional therapies, especially in those with severe obesity, including more intensive diets, drug therapies, and bariatric surgery. Let's focus first on behavioural weight management. Now, this is ideally delivered by a multidisciplinary team, but we all know that that may not be possible, so all of us need to have some skills in doing this. It must always be delivered with a non-stigmatising, developmentally appropriate and empathetic approach, a manner that's supportive of your patients. It needs to involve health education and skill building, as well as behaviour modification and counselling. And the core messages normally include um, a reduction in sugar-sweetened beverages, support through nutrition education and counselling for normalising healthy eating behaviours, at least 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity each day, a reduction in sedentary time and age-appropriate amounts of sleep. Let's now look at some of the additional therapies, particularly for those with more severe obesity who are adolescents. So let's think about intensive diets. Well, these recommendations vary across clinical practice guidelines. Um, there's the issue about macronutrient changes. Should this be a low-carbohydrate diet, a higher-protein diet? There's no one specific diet that appears superior, and essentially we must always ensure broad nutrition adequacy, and we need to go with what works for the patient. What about very low-energy diets? These certainly can give effective weight loss in the short term, but long-term outcomes are not clear. It must involve the uh, participation of a dietitian to oversee this. What about bariatric surgery? We know that this improves weight and cardiometabolic outcomes in adolescents with severe obesity. The best study to date is that of the teen longitudinal assessment of bariatric surgery or the teen labs study, which is a prospective enrolment of more than 240 adolescents undergoing bariatric surgery in five US centres. As you can see, weight change from baseline and the prevalence of dyslipidemia from baseline over three years of follow-up. And you can see that most of the weight change occurred in the first six months after the intervention and the dyslipidemia improvements occurred in the first year. And then they, relative, then they were relatively stable thereafter. Um, for those who had type 2 diabetes at baseline, there was a 95% remission by three years following the surgery. So I just want to highlight, however, that any bariatric surgery needs to be undertaken in youth-friendly, by youth-friendly bariatric surgery teams and needs long-term follow-up with people who are used to dealing with adolescents and young adults. What about obesity pharmacotherapy? There's a small, although growing, number of anti-obesity medications approved for use in adults. Few, however, are yet approved for use with youth, but more in the US than most other jurisdictions. 
they must be used in association with behavioural weight management. Um, in the US, those that are FDA approved for use in adolescence as of February 2023 are Orlistat, Fentamine to pyramate combination, liraglutide and semaglutide. There are some that aren't FDA approved, but off-label use is actually commonly prescribed by trained providers. What we do know is that the GLP-1 receptor agonists will change obesity um, management in adolescence in the next few years, so stay tuned. So in summary, all patients or families need developmentally appropriate behavioural weight management. In adolescents with more severe obesity, there's also a role for more intensive diets, pharmacotherapy and or bariatric surgery. Thank you for watching. Please join us for the next episode. Now let's just look again at the general indications for different forms of obesity management. Behavioural weight management is the absolute foundation for all patients and basically all therapists um, should be involved in delivering this, ideally a multidisciplinary team. There is a role for pharmacotherapy in adolescents aged 12 years or older, although the recommendations for this may vary between countries. Um, prescribers should have knowledge of patient selection criteria, medication efficacy, adverse effects, and the monitoring requirements needed. In some young people, bariatric surgery may be considered, for example, those aged 13 years and up, and again, uh, availability and indications may vary across countries. In the AAP guidelines, the recommendations were for those with class two obesity, so those who had a BMI greater than 35 or whose BMI percentile was greater than 120% of the 95th percentile, whichever was lower, lower, and if they had comorbid conditions, and that it was also to be considered as if they had class three obesity, that's a BMI greater than 40, or if they're, they were 140% or more of the 95th percentile for age and sex for BMI, whichever was lower. And it's very clear that this needs to be undertaken by an experienced adolescent bariatric surgery team. What about strategies to intensify behavioural weight management? Well, you can think about frequency and dosage. So you could increase the number of touch points, the number of times you connect with the patient or decrease the contact time. So see them more frequently in a shorter period of time. You could have a look at involvement of community clinic support. So partner with community or other healthcare entities to adopt evidence-based behavioural weight management and connect patients with existing community resources. You could look at different formats for delivery of care, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but group sessions or telehealth or virtual touch points. And consider, wherever possible, a multidisciplinary approach. So this involves integrating other health professionals into the clinical care of your patients, such as nurses or dietitians, physiotherapists, health educator, exercise scientists, clinical psychologists, or more. We need to consider the role of pharmacotherapy if you want to intensify treatment, 
but be aware of the approvals and availabilities of anti-obesity medications in your country and region. Importantly, there's no evidence to support the use of anti-obesity medications alone. Thus, medications must be used in conjunction with behavioural weight management. Uh, for many patients, they may need to learn to use injectable medications, so you need to provide that form of education. Now, I want to come and reflect on the issues of eating disorders. Um, there are divided professional opinions here. On one extreme, there are a group, particularly of some eating disorder professionals, who would say that any kind of obesity treatment is harmful, it's ineffective, and it causes eating disorders. And at the other, other end of the spectrum, you have people say, look, obesity treatment is safe, effective, and necessary. We don't even need to think about eating disorders. In, the reality, in reality, there's this, this spectrum of professional opinion. So how should we think about obesity treatment and eating disorders or psychological harms? Well, um, systematic reviews show that structured, professionally run obesity treatment in children and adolescents appears psychologically safe. Indeed, if anything, there appears to be improvements in depression, anxiety, self-esteem, body image, disordered eating, and eating disorder risk. Now, why might this be the case? It's probably because good quality treatment is given with respectful, in a respectful, supportive environment. Um, this support of regular eating and activity patterns and support for behaviour change. And guess what? Those are the same strategies that you, you use in eating disorder management. However, some who present for obesity treatment may have psychological problems and hence screening for depression and anxiety and disordered eating may be appropriate. So in summary, for behavioural weight management, consider increasing the frequency of contact involving other health professionals and using additional touchpoint strategies. Pharmacotherapy may be considered in those aged 12 years and older and bariatric surgery in those aged 13 years and older with class 2 obesity with comorbid conditions or in those with class 3 obesity. But check what's available in your area. You need to engage the young person and their family throughout. And I just want to remind you that high-quality, professionally delivered interventions are likely to decrease psychological harms although ongoing monitoring for depression, anxiety and disordered eating may well be very appropriate. So thank you for watching. Please join us for the next episode. Welcome to the sixth and final episode. So what's on the horizon? Well, there are emerging pharmacotherapies, a better evaluation of different modes of delivery, better understanding of eating disorder risk and psychological harms, and better targeted treatments. Let's turn to emerging pharmacotherapies. The STEP teams study is a phase 3A multinational double-blind parallel group randomised placebo-controlled trial. It involved adolescents from 12 to just under 18 with obesity or with overweight and at least one weight-related comorbid condition. They were randomly assigned to either receive semaglutide, 2.4 milligrams, which was given once weekly by, by subcutaneous injection, or 
placebo, and this went over a 68-week period. Importantly, both groups received support for lifestyle change. Now, you can see in the figure that there was a dramatic difference between those who received placebo, who only had a very small bit of weight change in terms of BMI, and a much more dramatic change in BMI for those on semaglutide. If we look at the weight loss thresholds, top right part of the figure, then 73% um, of those on semaglutide versus 18% on, on the placebo had uh, 5% or more weight loss. And indeed, those on semaglutide, 37% of those ha had 20% or more weight loss versus 3% of those on placebo. Yeah, indeed, there was a dramatic difference for the majority of people on semaglutide versus those on placebo. Um, of course, there are other medications that have recently had study, um, trials published, and this includes one on fentamine pyramate, uh, which was a phase four multicenter randomized double blind placebo controlled parallel design trial in adolescents with obesity aged 12 to 16 years. And this combination, fentamine to pyramate, was looked at in a higher dose versus a mid dose. And in both doses, there, there was a significant difference in uh, those who had a reduction in BMI compared with those on placebo. There are other drug trials underway in adolescence, and as I speak in March 2023, these include tazepatide and oxytocin. But stay tuned, this area is changing. I want to come back, though, and just say that there are marked inter-individual differences in response to therapy. So if we go back to the STEP teens study, you can see in the figure that there are some people who received this injectable medication who had some weight gain over that period of time. And there were some in the placebo group who had quite marked weight loss occurring. This sort of phenomenon, a variable difference, response to treatment is also seen in those with bariatric surgery and in specific dietary interventions. And it's intriguing. What distinguishes those who have higher weight loss versus those with poorer response to apparently the same treatment? So I think in the future, our understanding of what influences the marked heterogeneity in response to different treatments will have improved markedly. This will occur by combining data from intervention trials where patients are well phenotyped. So there are patient registries or agreements to share individual data. We're going to have a range of treatments and we will be able to match these different types of treatments or combinations of these treatments to the individual's phenotype. And we'll have to learn how, which combination, which work best for which people. However, a big but, Will the following barriers to providing treatment in real-life clinical settings be able to be resolved? What about our patients living in poverty? How do we adjust treatment for them? What about those patients with learning disabilities and developmental disorders? We clearly need to have greater family involvement and intensive practical interventions and involvement of specialist support services. Or those families with low literacy, we need to minimise or eliminate written material, have simple key messages and frequent phone support. Or those with psychiatric disorders, we need to involve other support services, including mental health support. In summary, 
we will have in the future more evidence for the use of anti-obesity medications in adolescents. We will better target therapies to our patients as we will have a better understanding of the inter-individual variations in response to therapy and we will work out what suits whom best. And we will need to even further support our patients living with social disadvantage or who have psychological problems or developmental disabilities. Thank you for watching. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.